Who can say where the killer roams, where the blood flows? It's slaying time. Slay away. Slay away. Hey Slayers, welcome back to Slay Away. I'm Anola Lagosi, and I'm here to chat about lore, gore, true crime, and every kill in between while I review horror films with special guests every other Friday night. Adrian from the Slasher podcast, welcome. I'm so excited Hi. to have you here. Hi, uh, thank you Are for you having ready? me. <laughs> Are you ready to talk horror with me today and all about John Carpenter's 1980 now cult classic, The Fog? I am. I'm really excited. I really enjoy this movie. Not a lot like goes down, but it's a good time. It is a good time. It's like, you know, your traditional something has happened. The town is cursed or haunted or whatever. And I don't think Carpenter really made another film quite like this. Um, the essence of the fog is very different than any of his other films, because this kind of has a creature feature element to it with right. the haunting but not quite although i think the creatures in this are really good and you only really partially see them most of the time so that adds to the spook factor yes and the entire thing also feels like a big urban legend which i yes. thoroughly enjoy i love urban like the storytelling aspect Ugh, so good i I'm pretty sure I've maybe talked about it on our podcast, but I used to walk around seventh grade with um, with like a folder of like stories that I would find urban legends that I would find on the Internet. And I would print them off on pieces of paper, actual paper, killing trees and would put them in a folder, take them to school and would walk around and hand them out to people. And I'd be like, we are going to be discussing this urban legend this week. That's the kind of person I was. So <laughs> any type of like urban legend type of vibe, I'm really into. This is just like... I feel like I'm probably a lot older than you, but I really wish we had gone to grade school together. <laughs> oh, my God. That's what I would be doing um, during lunchtime, handing out pages of See, urban this is legends. why I had no friends, because I did similar type stuff, but I wasn't quite as bold as all that. So <laughs> I just, yeah. I don't, <laughs> I don't know what I was well, thinking. I, I mean... You were thinking, oh, this is some cool shit. I need to share it with the world. And hopefully people were like, yeah, that's dope. Sometimes they would. Sometimes they obviously, I mean, it's seventh grade. So if they weren't enjoying yeah. it, then it, yeah, I was the butt of the joke that day. But I did it quite often. I grew up in the time period where, let's see. Uh, for us, we switched from having like... Um, junior highs to middle schools where now like when you went into sixth grade, you were in that. Oh, junior like the high junior high type of environment. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So, because it used to be like totally different. I think it was seventh to ninth grade or something. Mine was seventh and eighth grade in one school, and sixth grade okay. was like its own separate building. Like it was its own thing. Interesting. Yeah, weird. Well, but I'm from a super so small town, that's... so there was only one school for each grade, anyways. Oh, well, there so. you go. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't from a small town, but I was a year older than everyone in my class. So, like, I was already like when I was a freshman in high school, I was turning 16, and everybody else was turning 15. So, right. It's just like, hey, what's up? So, um, yeah, it was really strange to be a year older than everybody else. But uh, the of the basically. Group. When I was growing up, that was like the 1996 to 1999 or 97 to 2000 time period that I was in junior high. So, yeah, it was an experience. There's a lot of bad fashion coming back. And yeah, I was like, what's the vibe? What was the vibe in junior high back in oh, early God, 2000s? You know, there was a lot aughts. of Mariah Carey in that song that came out where she's like, 
<laughs> I remember the video distinctly. She's yeah, like on some dress. kind of tire wheel. Uh, <gasps> tire not swing. Not She's Carey. on a tire swing. Um, always be my baby. Always be my baby was Iconic. the hot thing. Um, <laughs> the whole thing with Selena was going on. Selena had passed away. Yes. Um, and I actually had my own bedroom for the first time. I was like 13 years old, 13, 14 years old. <laughs> so um, my brother and I shared a room until that time. We actually had bunk beds. So, um, you know, oh, wow, poor kids. That's, that's how it works. So it was actually the first house I ever lived in. I had my own room. I had my tiger beat shit on the walls. Oh, had- my God. Iconic. I had, but it wasn't JTT. It was Christina Ricci. <laughs> Even better, though. Even it better. It was like Christina Ricci from Casper on my wall. Um, and then, yeah, so that's, you know, I had my first CD player, and I, Selena just happened to be one of the, the albums that I got that year, I think, oh, in the Mariah Carey the record as well. So. What was your first CD? Do you remember what your first CD was? Oh, God. Uh, I don't remember what my first cd was it was you know what it's probably spice girls Ugh, great choice i'm pretty sure that was like my first vhs or one of my first like vhs tapes that i bought on my own was spice world i'm pretty sure yeah it was definitely spice world um the the cd was spice world and then um vhs the ones we were wearing out at that time period was all of the star wars vhs Films. Oh, it was me and my brother. Gee. So so good. Simpler times. We would, we would skip school literally. We would watch the Star Wars films <laughs> a lot. It was really bad. <laughs> the older ones, or were you watching like the the old ones, the originals? Okay. Yeah, we were okay. total delinquents. Um, so, <laughs> but um, okay. So back. So the before fog. we get into the fog, actually, right. before we get into the fog. I wanted to talk to you and ask you about, um, you know, how you discovered your love of horror. Oh, um, so for me, it's always been a constant in my life. Horror was just what my family consumed so much. So growing up, it just it was it like that's what we watched. It was that in wrestling, professional wrestling were the two things that my family like they just forcibly caused me to like fall in love with it growing up because um, that's just what they'd be playing. I can't remember like even my earliest memory just because it's just it was always around so i think from an early age it was just it was background music or like background noise from the jump for me and i just continued to fall in love with it continued to just seek out more and different types of horror movies and just became in love it was just something that was always like within my grasp pretty much so what was the first horror film that you remember watching? <sighs> That's so tough. I feel like there is so many different horror movies that I remember watching like around a young age. I think one of the earliest memories I do have, as far as I can recall, as far as my memory allows me to remember, uh, is Candyman. I remember watching that very young and being Ooh. very traumatized by it, being so terrified. And I remember like immediately as as you do when you're children. Like after we watched it, my cousins rushed us off to the bathroom and like turned off all the lights <laughs> and immediately made us start chanting Candyman's name. I was screaming, crying, like forced my way out of the bathroom because I, I couldn't deal. And it it scared me so much that I did not watch Candyman again until 2020 with isolation and everything. I was like, let me watch this movie because I haven't seen it since I was a kid. It's it a good me. time to revisit it, especially <laughs> around the time they announced that. You know, the continuation of the story, Candyman, right. was going to be happening at some point. Exactly why. But yeah, that's one of the earliest memories. 
Um, it, so Candyman came out in 1992. So can I ask how how old were you in 1992? Were you alive in 1992? No, wasn't born. Okay. <laughs> That's what I thought. <laughs> I was so born I'm, in 95. I'm trying to figure out like when you watched Candyman. So um, I was so like five probably, or six. Like, yeah. Okay. So I feel like I'm the same way. I didn't get into horror films. So I was like five or six because it's what my grandmother liked to watch. Right. And for a while I was, we were living like in the, like the three of us were living in the tiny room in the back of her trailer. <laughs> and so I was watching horror movies with my grandmother and she got me into it with the first thing we watched together was silver, silver bullets. That was my <gasps> thing. Ugh, love silver bullet. And now I still, yeah, I still really love it. It's got a special, special place in my heart. So, um, aside from the first horror film you ever watched, I got to ask what your favorite horror film is. Oof. Okay. I'm like quintessential that person where it's just, it's Scream. I have to say Scream. It was just, I don't know. It just, it worked for me. It, it came out like literally, I mean, I was a baby by the time when it first came out. And so, I don't know. It just, it always sat right with me. It's one of the earlier movies I do recall watching around seven, eight. And I don't know what it is about that movie. I just, I fell in love with it. Probably the meta aspect to it. And just the fact that they were acknowledging horror movies while being in a horror movie, which is so fucking cool to me as a kid for whatever reason. And it just, I latched onto it immediately. The ghost face mask still kind of freaks me out to this day. It really, really like shook me up as a kid. And I don't know. It just worked for me perfectly. Chasings are great. They're mint. The opening's iconic. And I don't know, it was something that I fell in love with like early on and I've always been obsessed with it. Now, I don't know if you've heard our episode of Scream. Um, That was a long one. And one, a couple key things that I had to touch on when it comes to Scream. There are two particular scenes where Ghostface is lurking around and it makes absolutely no sense that nobody notices. <laughs> okay. Literally That's the, gro- the grocery store makes no the sense to me. <laughs> Like, what are you just doing? Like, what the fuck is going on in this grocery store? And how is this possible right now? <laughs> These are just like random things where I feel like What's happening? Wes Craven was having a little bit of fun and just being like, I wonder who's going to notice how fucking weird and nonsensical this is. Broad daylight in the bushes. <laughs> yeah, broad daylight in the bushes, just kind of like cloak. slinking around. And then the grocery store, like, and everybody's looking for that particular yes. thing. Like, how does nobody in this grocery store notice this small town grocery store? Because, you know, uh, <clears throat> what is it? Um, curfew hasn't started yet or whatever. Right. Um, and then the second thing is the fact that Stu is in love with Billy. <sighs> Yes, we can talk all day <laughs> about their love and just how it like, just... Like, you don't really... You don't fully realize it till the end, and you probably didn't rec- even notice it until, like, the fifth or tenth time you watched the film. Right. But, like, Stu and, their, Stu and Billy and their intimacy in that scene when they're cutting the shit out of each other, it's mm. just like, whoa, okay... There's a lot of sexual tension happening yes, here. Yes. And Stu is very over the moon for Billy. And I think that Billy used his sexual prowess potentially to manipulate Stu into this situation. Yes. Ugh, the queer coding of it all. Yeah, it's so queer coded. But um, anyways, back to the back to the fog. <laughs> <laughs> the much now more. It is time. <laughs> um, so the fog is a 1980 supernatural horror film directed by one of my favorites, John Carpenter, household name for any horror fan, I'm sure. Um, he co-wrote the screenplay and created the music for the film. 
Adrian Barbeau stars in the film. Jamie Lee Curtis stars in the film as well. Um, this was Jamie Lee after Halloween, where she had a lot of like notoriety. She was gaining her screen, uh, scream queen status at this time. And the funny thing for me is when I first watched this film, I was very much expecting Jamie Lee Curtis to have a bigger part. Yeah. I was very thrown back when I watched this movie for the first time. So I was like, oh, she's just like this weird little drifter. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, and then Tom Atkins and Janet Lee, Jamie uh, Lee Curtis's mother is in this film. And then Hal Hallbrook. So um, it tells the story of this you know, strange glowing fog that like sweeps over the small coastal town um, in California. And I've forgotten the name of the town. Oh, yeah. Antonio Bay. <laughs> so uh, it brings vengeful ghosts of mariners who were killed in a shipwreck 100 years prior. Um, and you and I kind of touched a little bit on the fact that I just watched the remake. Um, one thing about the remake is it also it, there's a continuity issue with the fact that it doesn't occur a hundred years after the shipwreck. Oh, it doesn't. Interesting. So it's like whatever they're celebrating is not the hundred year like centennial of um, whatever's going on. Whatever's the happening of the town. I need to rewatch that movie because it sounds insane to me. The crazy thing is I never saw the first time that I watched the original um, was last year, 2020. I, I had never seen it. I don't know why it escaped me for so long. But I remember watching the original, or not the original, my goodness, but uh, the remake when I was younger. I remember watching that one so frequently. It never like was anything special to me. The one thing I remember about that movie is like the brief like five seconds scene where Tom, is it Tom Welling who's shirtless for like a, two seconds? And I'm like, that's all my brain remembers about that movie. But I, I have to rewatch it because it sounds pretty bad. I gave it one star. My letterbox <laughs> rating is all you need. To <laughs> I need it's, to rewatch. I was like, this is the only time I've been really harsh on a film. Um, and I gave it one star. I went so far as to put it on Rotten Tomatoes. I was like, I'm adding to this <laughs> audience score. Um, so yeah, it was bad. But um, The Fog, 1980, it was not a well-received film by critics upon its release. And... Um, the weird thing, though, was it was actually a hit at the box office, despite right. what critics had to say. The horror fans came out in droves, and it made over $21 million, and the budget for the film was only $1.1 million, which I'm like, whoa, okay, so I don't know how they had that budget, and they did those cool fog effects, because honestly, the fog effects in this film, to this day, hold up. They're so good. So good. So I mean, it's creepy. I mean, the whole, like, just the entire tone and, like, the atmosphere that's created with this movie is very creepy. It's very unsettling. And yeah, and that bright-ass fog definitely adds to it. Yeah, I mean, it's become a very much a cult classic since it came out. And um, the remake of the film in 2005 was universally panned by critics, as it should be, because it is a piece of trash. It's garbage. <laughs> And John Carpenter and Deborah Hill like helped produce that film. Also, they apparently, were, yes, I was like, how were they involved in the ooh, ooh. making of this movie? They saw dollar <laughs> signs the whole at that point. I gave it a try. <laughs> That's the whole reason I gave it a chance. And I was just like, this is the worst thing I've ever seen. I can't believe they were involved in this. John Carpenter, what are you doing? Um, they did not care at that point. I feel like, yeah, it was. Uh, I was really surprised. So, because Deborah Hill produced the first one, and then Carpenter. And Hill, I think, produced the remake. And right. 
The remake was directed by, what's his name? Something Wainwright. We don't even know, don't need to know his first name. <laughs> Not worth it. John Carpenter's The Fog. This is KAB Antonio Bay. Stevie Wayne here. And let me be the first to wish Antonio Bay a happy birthday. We're 100 years old today. And keep a watch out for that fog bank heading in from the east. 100 years ago, between midnight and one, something unknown came out of the fog. Now it has returned. Who's there? Antonio Bay has a curse on it. We're all cursed. There's no water got in here, but something off a cold pin. I think I'll go to Vancouver now. Where's the fog now? Well, it should be right outside my door now. Oh, there's something different about this fog. Dan, stay away from the door! Someone listen to me! Get inside and lock your doors. Close your windows. There's something in the fog. Stay away from the fog. The ultimate experience in terror and suspense. John Carpenter's The Fog. Starring Adrian Barbeau, Jamie Lee Curtis, John Houseman, Janet Lee as Kathy Williams, and Hal Holbrook as Father Malone. The Fog. What you can't see won't hurt you. It will kill you. Between midnight and one, it will find you. It is at this time you should stop what you're doing. Stop listening to this podcast. And if you haven't seen the film that we're talking about today, please go watch the film, come back, and then continue on this journey with us because we want you to enjoy it right along with us. Now, let's get back to the film. Let's just walk through the plot here. So, um... Has the so one of the things Adrian and I agree the way that this film opens is the best. So it actually opens with this really great um kind of montage uh going throughout the town. Why while this like older sailor or like someone who is kind of like the vagrant in the town, it looks right. like is basically by the campfire with a bunch of children. Not sure exactly what's going on there, but he's telling <laughs> them the story of um the 
Elizabeth Dane and this like shipwreck from a hundred years ago. And he's talking about this ghost story. Um, and that sets the tone for the whole film because that's what it's centered around. So um, as the coastal town of Antonio Bay in Northern California, apparently that's where it is. I don't know if Antonio Bay is actually a real place. I'm going to have to look it up, but they're about to celebrate their hundredth anniversary and then paranormal activity begins occurring <laughs> at midnight. Um, so the town priest, Father Malone, discovers his grandfather's diary at the church after a piece of masonry falls from the wall. And that's kind of what kicks off this movie. But the journal reveals that in 1880, the six founders of Antonio Bay, including his grandfather, deliberately sank a clipper ship named the Elizabeth Dane so that its wealthy leprosy afflicted owner mm. uh, Blake would not establish a leper colony nearby so <laughs> the conspirators used gold that they plundered from the ship to found and fund the building of Antonio Bay so dirty such a dirty it was extremely beginning. <laughs> dirty and I was like how dare so how dare you do that to these people like but it's interesting because as I watched this film again, and I kind of got that whole allegory of the other. I yes. was like, oh, there's, you know, the it's when you think about it, there's some subtext in there in terms of just allegory. Same thing happens with uh, Clive Barker's Nightbreed that is um, sort of yes. a queer allegory, right? So we think, I think that's interesting. That's in a sense, that's what Blake and his people kind of represent is the other and something unknown and scary. Right. And at the time that this film came out i think it was uh around the beginning of the uh aids panic right in the 1980s yeah definitely get that into i mean again like i said dirty very dirty like you said anything other different that is presenting itself is terrifying to them and i guess like one of the things as well that it explains in the journal is like one of the most frightening things is that like the colony would be you know within just a few miles like they're going to be close to us and that just it can't happen they can't be near us and it's just it's dirty i also want to know like how big is this fire that they have going back in 1880 in which like this poor ship can break through the fog and see this fire and cause them to crash like how big is this fire? What are they burning? I don't know. Probably the remnants of the town that they <laughs> failed to build in the first place. <laughs> I was going to say, is all the wood I didn't want to be too dark. I was going to be like, nearby. it's probably the bodies of the family members of these people because <gasps> no need for them anymore, right? I mean, I don't know. So apparently they were on an island originally, and then the ship was coming from the original leper colony on the island, and they wanted to set up the colony on just like part of Antonio Bay. They didn't even want to take over the whole area. They, they just wanted a little piece for themselves. Um, <laughs> Disaster. And the townspeople were like, fuck no, that's not happening. You can't set up shop here. And not only can you not set up shop here, we won't just turn you away. We're going to murder you and sink your ship. So um, in this case, they basically caused the ship to run aground um, up against the rocks and stuff. In the remake, they row out to the ship, set it on fire, and, like, oh. murder everybody. <laughs> so, oh, a lot more up, up front with what their <laughs> intentions were. It's a were. real up close and personal. <laughs> it's <so>. real personal. <laughs> that is crazy. I kind of, I like the sneaky maneuvering. I like the conspiring and, you know, 
it's a little bit more interesting than just like yeah, instead they're like literally sending letters back and forth being like oh yeah we're totally gonna be there we'll um wh- whether it's a fire or like the location of where i think the lighthouse is now uh in antonio bay i think that's where the fire the the big like bonfire was interesting okay okay interesting i can't say that with certainty but <laughs> i think that's where it was I'm so buy into um it. <laughs> uh so meanwhile when um this this story is being told and different things are going on so three fishermen are out at sea when a strange glowing fog envelops their trawler so a fishing trawler is basically just like a mid-sized boat you guys (laughs) but it's not necessarily a ship um if you're curious what a trawler is just go watch sea fever um Because it takes place on a trawler. Uh, So the fog brings with it the Elizabeth Dane carrying the vengeful revenants of Blake and his crew who killed the fishermen. Meanwhile, town resident Nick Castle is driving home and picks up a young hitchhiker named Elizabeth Sully. And that is Jamie Lee Curtis's character. So as they drive towards town... All of the truck's windows, um, like, just shatter randomly. Right. I don't really, I can't really remember if there was fog happening at that point in time. There wasn't. There wasn't anything going on it at was, that it point. It was just like, okay, spooky shit's it was about just, to yeah, go down. It's like shaking. a sign from beyond. <laughs> yeah. They're just warning everybody, pre-warning. But um, I don't know if we want to go through the whole thing. So there is a a story that inspired this film, like a real actual story that is interesting that I want to talk about. So we can go through the whole plot of the film first, if you'd like Adrian, or we can jump over and see what that story has to say. No, you know what? Give me the tea on the story. Cause then it'll just make talking about the okay, movie that yeah, much more fun. I'm like, let's I've read this before and I'm going to read it again. Um, there's probably going to be a bunch of stuff that we don't care about. Okay. <laughs> So John Carpenter's The Fog happens to be partially based on truth. The premise that brings about the vengeful ghost happens to be based on an actual shipwreck off the coast of California near the town of Goleta, California in the 19th century. A ship sank and its contents were plundered. Um, I assume by the townspeople that were nearby. So details of the wreck are sort of sparse and hard to find. One thing is important in the story and the purpose of this article. Uh, the ship wreck that was the premise for the fog actually did happen. So it was actually called the Elizabeth Dane. So um, and this is from an article called Based on a True Story by Jonathan Gronley um, in The Independent. So just FYI, that's where I took that little factoid from. Um, but yeah, so it's based on, I think, you know, he just, Carpenter took this idea right. about a shipwreck and was like, okay, so, you know, shipwreck, people plundered it, people died, ghosts, revenge, like the story kind of makes itself up right yeah, there. Yeah, it writes itself pretty much. So, the following morning, local radio DJ Stevie Wayne... We love Stevie Wayne. Uh, love Stevie Wayne. <laughs> Everything Played by about Adrian Barbeau uh, is given a piece of driftwood by her son Andy, and it is inscribed with the word Dane. So we know, like, okay, this came from the shipwreck. Uh-huh. Oh my gosh! Spooky like, ship what, stuff. 
how it's like a hundred years later. Where did it come from? Um, and Andy says that he found it on the beach. So intrigued, Stevie takes it with her to the lighthouse where she broadcasts her radio show. So I'm assuming this is someone who she got divorced. She moved from the city to this small town. She's like, I'm just going to create my own radio station and set it up in the lighthouse. Yeah, I'm going to great prime real estate. So I just love <laughs> that she's an entrepreneur. Um so she sets the wood down next to a tape player that is playing, but the wood, like, it starts to seep water and yeah. it causes the tape player to short circuit. Um, and then a mysterious man's voice, like, starts playing over the tape player, swearing revenge, and the words six must die appear on the wood <laughs> before it bursts into flames. Um, which it was a really cool effect considering it's 1980. Yeah, pretty um, well done. Yeah, and then Stevie, she puts the fire out, but um, she sees that the wood once again reads Dane and the tape player begins working normally again. So it was all sort of like a uh, a hallucination or spooky haunted illusion or something. Like, is that what happens with paranormal activity? Your mind just plays tricks on you? No, Kinda these like ghosts how, are so well, like large and in, in charge. Like, they want you to know what's happening. Like, they're not messing around. Like, they laid it out for her straight away. They're like, We're, six of you have to die. It's happening. So just be prepared. And they're shaking shit up at midnight. They're causing windows to explode. Like, they're not trying to hide <laughs> at all. They're like, we are coming. I just hope you guys are ready. There's a bit, there's been a fog like glowing off the coast for like a week. We've been watching. Like, you guys are just sitting ducks at this point because they're not playing around these ghosts. Yeah. So, <laughs> so one of the things that people often talk about is the fact that Nick Castle and Elizabeth Sully, they meet each other. She's like, I just need a ride. She's like a hitchhiker. He sure. picks her up. And the next thing you know, she's like in town forever for good. They're <laughs> hooking up. They're shagging, shacking up, shagging and shacking up in <laughs> Both, Nick's yeah. uh, house, which like he's got a cute little beach house. Everybody has a cute little like home. Yeah. The whole town is like an aesthetic. I like really um, enjoy. Stevie's is like a mansion to me. Like that property is probably so expensive. <laughs> like the gorgeous view that she has in that house is insane to me. Oh, she does have a really nice view. She's in the perfect spot. Like the fog rolls into there first, but otherwise it's great. Right. Yeah. Prime <laughs> real estate, this whole entire little town. So yeah, some people talk about like, it's weird how they get together and then they're just like together the rest of the film, not necessarily as lovers, but you know, they've built some kind of a bond and they bond right. really quickly. So yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> that was my one thing with this movie. Yeah. When I watched it for the first time again, cause I watched it for the first time last year. So as I'm sure with everybody going into this movie, you see Jamie Lee Curtis in a horror movie around the eighties and you're like, Oh yeah, it's her movie. But you go into it and she's, she's, she's really not focused on at all and yeah for her to have a scene where she gets picked up and immediately starts sleeping with this person i was like what happened in that time like did the windows exploding really turn you on that much to where you're like okay let me just shack up with this guy real quick for the night like doesn't even tell her or doesn't even tell him her name she's just she was i mean i get it i mean tinder wasn't a thing back then you know it was a lot harder to get lucky so you gotta take with what you could get i guess in this situation and it was midnight so she had to sleep somewhere I feel bad to say it, but I was like, this is not an attractive man, Jamie. No. I don't know what you're doing. I feel so bad. Sorry, Tom. I mean, you're, I mean, it won't matter at all. We'll never meet each other. <laughs> but yeah, when he, I saw him when I first, oh my gosh, when she picked him up or when he picked her up, I was like, I was like, okay, yeah, he's like kind of creepy and he just doesn't, he just looks so creepy. And she even asks him, are you weird? And I'm like, why are you playing around like this? It is Does midnight. Does he have a creepy stash? 
in this film? He does, No, right? he doesn't. No? He's okay. clean shaven. Doesn't make him any less creepy, but, you know, she goes for it. But I understand, you know, I'm a hopeless romantic sometimes <laughs> when I, <when, laughs> I want to be. So, like, the aspect of, like, having this crazy adventure with some random guy from Antonio Bay is pretty enticing uh, as, like, a one-time story. Yeah. But unfortunately, I mean, he has his own house. <laughs> that, yeah. And truck. Uh-huh. <laughs> so. And then she gets wrapped into, like, a murder mystery situation. She so does. I, I understand, the like... Who <laughs> I understand her like intrigue in the entire situation, but yeah, I would have been, I would have been gone quickly. She even jokes about it. Like how she has to leave after the dead body falls on her and she still sticks around, but you know. Yeah. It's so weird. I also, I'm just like, why are you going with him to the fishing trawler? Why? The hospital. Um, I would have been gone. If that. There's a whole lot. I'm just like, this is the time to bounce, Jamie. Um. But yeah, <laughs> I have to. But you know what? She does her due diligence in this movie. Mm-hmm. You know, she's who she's supposed to be. I guess doesn't get a lot really. But I mean, she's gorgeous as I always. Think she plays the part well, yeah. and I do not like the way uh, her character was revised and made to be the central character of the remake. <laughs> they thought that oh they had God. Jamie Lee Curtis still. That's their whole idea. Yeah, I'm like, nah. You had Meg Grace still. <laughs> literally that's what it was like jamie lee she was big um (laughs) i just i think in my review i was just like maggie grace is not a substitute for jamie lee curtis or i just i'm not even gonna go into it because i don't want to be shitting on maggie grace (laughs) (laughs) i need to watch that movie it's really her i think part of it is the story itself and then just maggie's range is not what is needed for the role she was playing right for any type of lead she's just not a lead she isn't <laughs> i don't want to say that but she's getting she's snatched up and taken like you know snatch her out yeah. of the movie get rid of her. Well, Take plus her she off. also plays kind of like a as opposed to jamie lee curtis's version of elizabeth where she's like pretty she's a strong independent woman traveling hitchhiking on her own living very freely doing what she wants and then like this other version of elizabeth in 2005 is trying to kind of do that but then at the same time she's very like she kind of has that i need a guy to protect me vibe with her and nick and it just like there's something about her that feels a lot wafier that i'm not a fan of I'm going to have to watch that movie then just for the sheer like shits and giggles and of the it all. And makes no fucking sense. So um, <laughs> we'll, <laughs> we'll go back to this. So after locating the missing fishing crawler, Nick and Elizabeth find the corpse of one of the fishermen. His name is Dick Baxter. Um, and Great his name. eyes are gouged out. So, so, so brutal. So that's brutal. a good scene. Um, and then two, the other two are missing and one is the husband of Kathy Williams, who is overseeing the town's uh, centennial celebrations. So, Kathy Williams is played by Janet Lee, Jamie Lee Curtis's mother. Uh, so great. <laughs> you know what's really funny? The way you mentioned um, Jamie's character earlier, Elizabeth, in this movie, how she's just like so free, doing this, doing that. Um, it kind of gave me a little bit of tease of Janet's character in Psycho, because she's just doing her own thing, living freely, oh, yeah. having sex at the beginning of the movie, which was a big thing, you know, back then. She's wearing all black panties. <laughs> yeah, very that. You know, she's different. She's a bad girl. Well, they have that whole symbolism in the film of like, she starts in white undergarments. And then after she steals the money, she's in black undergarments. Oh, and it's yes. supposed to be this like good and evil and all yes. of us kind of a thing. And I'm just like, oh, man. 
So, um, so good. God, she looked great in that film. She does. So, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but she's great in this movie. And quite she's honestly, great in this movie too. Um, uh, oh my God, I always forget the actress's name, but Annie from Halloween, she's in this movie as well as like her she is assistant. She's in this movie too. So and her name actually. Funny enough, is uh, Loomis. Her last name is actually Loomis. Nancy Loomis is her name. Okay. Yeah, Nancy Loomis. There we go. I just need to remember her last name. Yeah, she's great in this movie, too. I mean, she doesn't give me a lot of, like, dynamic range, but she's great. And I love her, like, they sassy talk attitude. talk about her in this thing I'm reading as a member of the cast, which is doing her dirty. Like, she so has her. several speaking lines so yeah. i'm not sure what's going on with this she's here till <laughs> the end uh, like from beginning to end she's one of the first people that yeah. we see in town at midnight like reacting to everything <laughs> they just completely <laughs> forget about her but she she's great die though i think right she i don't dies. think so one thing with this movie is beyond the babysitter i don't think any women die she's the only one that dies everybody else is men. does nobody die i don't i don't have a kill count in front of me so uh, maybe not that many people die, I guess, other six. than the fishing boat guys. And there's six. Yeah, because that's what they're coming back for. Six. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. I forgot. Did they actually take six, though? Yeah, they killed the three fishing uh, people. They killed the babysitter. Uh, they kill. Not me just watching this movie and forgetting who they killed. Um, oh, they killed the, ra- the the weatherman who's like watching who's being like who's the so annoying. And uh, we can presume the pastor the the minister oh yeah he does die yeah maybe he is the last one was it only five he should be the last one because technically it was only five and there's actually like a end of the film or like a semi post credit scene <gasps> what i need to get with it i need to go back and it's at the very the- end it i don't think it's at the end of the credits but it's like one of those it seems like the movie ended but it didn't actually end and you get like two more minutes of a movie <gasps> Uh, oh, I see, we'll <laughs> I see what you're hold saying. I see what you're saying. So it's actually in here. I'll talk about it. So um, while Elizabeth is alone in the autopsy room, because for some reason she accompanies Nick Castle <laughs> to the hospital to this man's autopsy, Dick Baxter. Um, Dick Baxter's corpse rise. His corpse rises from the autopsy table and approaches her before collapsing. Like. Super spooky. <laughs> yeah, I love that scene, actually. It's really, really creepy to me. Um, So she screams, Nick in the corner, Dr. Phoebe's rush into the room where they see the once again lifeless corpse has carved the number three on the floor. So I assume that's symbolizing that he is the third victim. Victim. Yeah. yeah. So uh, that evening at the town's celebration or like when they start, the celebration begins, local weatherman Dan calls Stevie at the radio station to tell her that another fog bank has appeared and is moving towards the town. So what you're not going to get in this synopsis is how Dan is like constantly asking Stevie out and trying to get her to go on a date. It's kind of the saddest thing because (laughs) she listens to Dan die over their phone call. Um, And she's like, oh, my God, close the door, stay inside, don't let the fog in. Like, I don't know how she knows any of this stuff. Oh, yeah, she knows um, everything about it immediately. She burns alive, and it's like, it's really scary. Yeah, it's it's spooky. So um, they're talking, like we said, and the fog gathers outside the weather station, and Dan hears a knock at the door. So there's there's that rapping, there's the banging, there's the three times, like, 
I think it's three times or maybe it's six. Knock, knock, knock. It's like a big bang noise. Yeah, so good. Um, it's not your average knock at the door. <laughs> so um, he answers it and is killed by the revenants as Stevie listens in horror to him dying. I'm pretty sure something does happen where things light on fire, though. With maybe him? that's just the new version. The new version, everything gets set on fire and. Dan what? dies in a fire. What are they doing in this remake? I need to know. Is he a weatherman in the remake as well? Yes, but they're, you know, there's just those little explosions like <laughs> fire. I don't, think he goes up, I don't think he goes up in flames in this one. Does he not? Because like I, I so. the, the remake is the last one that I watched and now all I remember is Dan getting lit on fire. I'm just the so. right amount of like deranged as a person to be like, yo, yeah, I remember that for sure. But Stevie proceeds with her radio show <laughs> after she, this happens. She is um, but she's obviously in a panic. Like she's she's telling people, she's trying to be the voice out to the people in town that sh- some weird shit is going on and they need to do something to protect themselves. So the fog starts moving inland, disrupting the town's telephone and power lines, and she's like trying to get the message out, right? So um, using a backup generator, Stevie begs her listeners to go to her house and save her son when she sees that the fog is closing in from her lighthouse vantage point. So I think the reason that she is indicating like, please help me help my son, the fog's coming, there's something in the fog, is because I think Dan mentioned something about the fog when he goes to open the door. And so she's like putting two and two together. Yeah, and she speaks with Nick a little bit before that because, you know, with his whole, like, side story, like, he's trying to figure out what's going right. on. he told her about the, the fisherman and the trawler, right? Yeah, and how weird that death was and, like, you know, the fog. He's a little suspicious. They're both, like, very suspicious of the fog when – I forget who mentions it first, but they're both – like, both their ears perk up and they're like, oh, the fog. Yeah, there's something weird about this fog. Oh, yeah, yeah, because then he mentions it and how there had been a fog and, like, his body was like he had been – like, right. he had been underwater for, like, a month or something crazy. I think people have been talking about how weird and thick this fog is first. <laughs> I'm telling you, they've been <laughs> the fog has been off the coast watching, just chilling, shining like a nightlight every night, and they just <laughs> let it happen. They just didn't care. Oh my gosh! The so <laughs> the so apparently Andy's babysitter is Mrs. Kobritz, uh, played by Regina Walden. Regina Walden gets a credit on this thing that I'm reading, but Andy <laughs> Loomis Andy does not. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's probably because I call her Andy from Halloween. <laughs> She's got a credit in the opening credits, I'm pretty sure. It's like with Nancy Loomis. Literally, it um, pops up right when it shows the church for the first time. I remember. Yeah. So, yeah, she I gets her thought, credit. Like, I know it's in there. She was in there. She was in the movie. <laughs> I know he was there. They start to pursue Andy. Like, the, the revenants arrive. They kill Andy's babysitter, Mrs. Coberts, and they're coming after Andy. I think he's blockaded himself in his room. Uh-huh. Nick arrives just in time to save the day and rescue him. I think he like smooshes his window out and um snatches up the kid. But like at the same time, I'm like, the fog is like all around. Right. <laughs> um, so how are you okay? But somehow they managed to get back to the truck and not get murdered by the fog or have their car <laughs> stopped again. And I can't even remember if the windows on his vehicle have been replaced. Like, I don't know what's going on. No, they were all like wide open. I think it's like because okay. they're freaking out because their windows are like wide open and they're like reaching in by the time. You know how it is oh, in horror yeah. movies. Okay, the truck yeah. won't start. All, it, was, it drove here just right. fine. The truck won't start. Ten seconds ago, but now it's not moving. The truck won't start. <laughs> um, the fog has uh, 
prevented the truck from starting because it's spooky fog and right. it's got powers. Right, right. But Stevie advises everyone to head to the town's church, which I think is like the highest point in the town. She's like, the fog isn't there yet. Get to the church. It might get there someday, but it's got big, thick walls, so we're all going to be okay. Also, so, nobody goes. Uh, <laughs> Just the main yeah, people. Yeah, nobody goes except for the main characters. <laughs> so what's inside? Because you got to assume there's at least 50 people living in that town. At least. There was at least 20 <laughs> watching the celebration. celebration going yeah. on. Like, every Everybody should be there. It should be a parade, um, but nobody but nobody cares. Not. Yeah, nobody cares. <laughs> nobody the budget cares. was not spent on extras. Cause <laughs> no. <laughs> so once inside, Nick, Elizabeth, Andy, Kathy, her assistant, Sandy, who is Nancy Loomis, by the way. Who's <laughs> in the movie. She is there. She's in the movie. Nancy Loomis um, is there. Yes. So, uh, and Father Malone, the priest, take refuge in a back room as the fog arrives outside. So inside the room, they locate a gold cross in the wall cavity, which is made from the stolen gold from the Elizabeth Dane. So dirty. They turned it into a cross. Like, come on. (laughs) Um, to hide it, I guess it's like this is our family fortune. We're gonna hide it in this cross because who would fuck with a cross? Nobody. <laughs> um, so as the revenants begin their attack, Malone takes the gold cross out into the chapel. So knowing that they have returned to take six lives in lieu of the six original conspirators who led them to their deaths, Malone offers the gold and himself to Blake to spare the others. At the lighthouse, more revenants attack Stevie, trapping her on the roof. This is actually a really cool scene because literally Adrian Barbeau is like crawling all over this lighthouse roof um, as this fog is like rolling up the lighthouse. I at first I was like, okay, so I think they got into the lighthouse because... There's like a gap under the door. <laughs> so <laughs> like, uh, the fog rolled in and then they're just literally chasing her up until she has to leave the lighthouse, which seems like it would be protected. And now she's on the roof as they're using like scythes, like hooks, like fishing hooks and stuff to try and hook her in snag her and yeah yeah. it's insane it's great actually it's and she's just like rolling around trying to avoid them (laughs) this is going on so um that's like the big action of the film so um do you know that that was added like much later also in like filming yeah because i guess apparently they had done like uh, my mind is a mush pit but i'm pretty sure they had done like a screening or something of the sort and people were like it doesn't feel as scary so they added in like that whole entire lighthouse scene just to, I guess, kind of help it be scary. That's also when they added in the ghost story, our favorite part of the movie. They added that. Like, the ghost the- story at the beginning is so great. It sets it up so perfectly. And it really, it's like, it prepares you to be like, oh, this is spooky. This is supernatural. I'm into this. I'm going to like let that story take me over for this 90 minutes. Yes, it's so good. It kind of gives me tease. Oh my God, the most random thing. But you're like, you know, like, <laughs> like an unsolved <laughs> mysteries or like, did oh it, yeah like when they like have a lead in like that and then, then it like fades into like you know like the reenactment or whatever but like yes. it gives me that kind of vibe and i was always so down with it as a kid so when i watched this for the first time i was like oh this is fun i love a lead in like this i'm obsessed with the unsolved mysteries so uh, you got me there same. i'm also a big true crime fan so um <laughs> inside the church blake seizes the gold cross and it begins to glow um i feel like it glows to where it's like white hot and he drops it because it like burns or something yes i do recall Um, that so nick nick like pulls malone away from the cross seconds before it disappears in a blinding flash of light along with blake and his crew so they came and they only took the cross and i was like what 
You just want the gold back? What? <laughs> um, <laughs> so the revenants at the lighthouse also disappear and the fog vanishes. I gotta say that is pretty anticlimactic. Yeah, it ends so suddenly. The movie feels very short. It does feel like a very short movie. I mean, it is. It's 90 minutes long. It's, it's so not... short. <laughs> it, you feel it. <laughs> so it's kind of like, oh, we ran out of money, guys. <laughs> So um, Stevie gets down from the roof and makes it back safely um, or to safety. I think she actually heads to uh, towards the church to find her son or something. I can't quite remember. But after Elizabeth, Nick, Andy, Kathy and Sandy leave the church, Malone contemplates why he was spared by Blake. However, moments later, the fog reappears inside the church along with the revenants and Blake is decapitated. He decapitates Malone and, and uh, the screen cuts to black delicious did you not see that part did you <laughs> just stop it after the flash of light uh our most recent rewatch listen again i don't know there's but... like a little bit of a montage so you think it's over but you gotta keep watching because this is the moment this man gets decapitated <laughs> i oh, oh my god i am upset because no i've never seen that in the times <laughs> that i've watched this movie since i watched it for the first time in 2020 and it's only been a handful of times i've only seen it like yeah. three times but yeah i've never seen that i've never seen that happen so now i'm very disappointed <laughs> in myself in the remake malone doesn't die a bunch of the founders founding family people don't die and it makes no sense i mean just he's more slimy in throw that, movie. that under the bus right again <laughs> i just know he's probably more slimy in that remake <laughs> um i don't remember him being particularly slimy they kind of make uh blake like he's ghostly and he's a leper but like kind of attractive <gasps> Ooh, okay i'm definitely watching like for a leper he's attractive i guess is i don't know if that makes sense <laughs> like i mean i think you know if you have if you have leprosy and you've got some flesh taken away you could still be attractive not saying <laughs> lepers can't be attractive obviously blake is proof john carpenter said that he uh was inspired for the story and it was partly drawn from a british film called the trollenberg terror which i've never seen so i need to probably add it to my 100 films in 92 days watch list I am doing this challenge. Um, and it dealt with monsters hiding in the clouds. <gasps> oh, oh, what What is it called again? It's called the Trollenberg Terror. Okay, hold on. I'm also going to add it to my watch list now. Cloud monsters just sounds like a great time. So that makes sense. It but also partially inspired by like he took some of that truth you know, from the other story too. So, um, but I like that for the, the development of the monsters. So Carpenter also said that he was inspired by a visit to Stonehenge with his co-writer and producer and then girlfriend, Deborah Hill. He is running through them because he's dating. <laughs> he's with Adrian during this movie as well. Is he? Yes. Um, they were together at the time that they filmed this one. He wrote well, that part for Apparently during her. development, <laughs> he, he was with Deborah. Deborah so he's running through um, them. I love you, John. Um, <laughs> while in England promoting assault on Precinct 13, Carpenter and Hill visited the site in the late afternoon one day and saw an eerie fog in the distance. So um, in the audio commentary on, um, I think, the DVD and probably the Blu-ray of the film, Carpenter noted that the story of the deliberate wreckage of a ship and its subsequent plundering, excuse me, was based on an actual event. So that's uh, the wrecking of the frolic that took place in the 19th century. That's the one we talked about near Goleta, California. So um, this event was portrayed more directly in a 1975 Tom Laughlin film called The Master Gunfighter. 
if you want to just watch a film that's all about that wreckage. <laughs> so um, the premise also has a strong resemblance to um, Massimo Papilo's 1965 uh, Terror Creatures from the Grave. And um, it also is similar to John Greeleaf Whittier's poem, uh, The Wreck of the Palantine, which apparently appeared in the Atlantic Monthly in 1867, but I really doubt that Carpenter was reaching that far back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but that poem was actually about uh, the wreck of a ship called Princess Augusta in uh, 1738. And apparently that was like Block Island within the Rhode Island area. That's crazy. Totally different coast. Yeah, different coast. So the fog was actually part of a two-picture deal that Carpenter had along with Escape from New York that came out in 1981. <laughs> so, like, Escape from New York and The Fog are drastically different films. So different. So I feel like it was like, okay, we're going to make Escape from New York, which probably had a huge budget. And then um, I, I can also do this, like, low-budget passion project. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he kind of did that with Halloween. So maybe he was yeah. taking a swing. You know what I'm saying? Like, maybe, so, maybe something like this can also be a big hit for yeah, me. Yeah, <laughs> it was very much like a low-budget independent film. And Carpenter decided to um, shoot it anyway. And uh, he tried to prevent it from looking like a low-budget horror, which I think he mostly succeeded in. I would agree um, with that. It looks really good then, for the 80s. It's... Yeah, there's I think most of the interior scenes were like shot in Hollywood, California, and then there's lots of other um, points of reference all throughout California. So for the most part, it's um, accurate in terms of its setting. But um, apparently after viewing a rough cut of the film, Carpenter was dissatisfied with the results and recalling the experience, Carpenter commented that it was terrible. I had a movie that didn't work and I knew it in my heart. So Oof. Carpenter added the prologue with um, uh, Mr. Bacon, who's telling the ghost story to fascinate the children by the campfire, which I absolutely love that opener. And um, he's actually, so ha that's played by John Houseman and Houseman actually played a similar role um, in the opening of a 1981 film called ghost story. <laughs> so um, Carpenter added several other new scenes as well. There were reshoots um, in other parts that just like made it more frightening and, and actually go gorier as well. Probably. I'm wondering if the eye gouging was added like in the afterward and everything yeah. was added in afterward Let's see if it says but carpenter and hill have said that the necessity of a reshoot became especially clear to them after they realized that the fog would have to compete with horror films that had like a way higher gore content um and one third of the film was finished uh with newer footage so it increased the budget uh slightly to like 1.1 million dollars they still they barely did anything but they did a lot i guess at the same time so um the casting i think is actually really perfect there's you know despite tom atkins <laughs> sorry tom uh <laughs> who just is like kind of a creepy dude i'm just like dude what are you doing you you because you know tom atkins nick castle is sleeping with adrian barbeau's character stevie wayne right and he picks up 
Jamie Lee Curtis's character, Elizabeth Sully, on the side of the road, and then all of a sudden they're sleeping together. And I'm just like, I want, you know, it's the 80s, I guess. I he has know. some type of energy. I don't know what's happening because <laughs> he is energy. seducing these people, and I have yeah, no like, idea. Apparently, he's a fucking stud. Yeah, <laughs> he is great in bed, is the story around Antonio Bay because he's pulling is him it? in. I guess so. Oh there God, has to a- be. It has to be, I'm sure. I don't know. <laughs> because I don't know what's happening. <laughs> I really don't understand. I don't understand. But, you know, the law of attraction works differently for a lot of people. So apparently there's a lot of um, character names and other references in this film. So it says, besides the fact that many of the actors in the fog also appeared in Halloween um, and not just the original, but later chapters, (laughs) there are several characters in the fog um, that are named after people that Carpenter collaborated with on previous film projects. So Dan O'Bannon, Dan O'Bannon actually is the screenwriter for Alien, and um, he was also the screenwriter who worked with Carpenter on Dark Star. So they worked together on this as well. I think Dan O'Bannon wrote the screenplay, or he co-wrote the screenplay with Carpenter, I think. Um, And then Nick Castle is the actor who played Michael Myers in Halloween. Yes. Um, Nick Castle, obviously, uh, so, uh, and that's actually the name of the actor. So the character's name is named after the actor. (laughs) Um, and Nick Castle co-wrote Escape from New York too. Um, Whoa, I did not know that. (laughs) And then Tommy Wallace worked with Carpenter as an editor and art designer and sound designer on a bunch of other films in like the seventies and eighties. Um, and apparently Tommy Wallace is like an amalgamation of names of two children, Tommy Doyle and Lindsay Wallace, yes. who were babysat by Laurie Strode in Halloween. So I'm just like, man, I just love it when you do these little Yes, these little Easter tidbits. eggs. It's so fun. Um, and then Richard Corbett's uh the producer of Carpenter's 1978 TV film Someone's Watching Me inspired the name of the character Mrs. Corbett so the babysitter who dies uh, Nancy Keys who plays uh, so her name has changed it's not Nancy Loomis anymore it's Nancy Keys oh okay um, who plays Sandy, Sandy Fidel also played Annie in Halloween which we all know um, <laughs> I love the character of Annie she's like one of my favorite characters oh, in I Halloween love her. yeah I love her I love her vibe again there's not like a lot of she's so depth. perfect yeah but it's amazing in both but films she is she is she really embodies your stereotypical 1970s um honor student babysitter you know <laughs> yes i um, love her who also smokes pot and like goes out to sneaks out to like have sex with her boyfriend so um as we know jamie lee curtis who plays elizabeth is also Lori from halloween and then charles cyphers who plays dan also played officer bracket in halloween oh my gosh i never made that connection i didn't either the first time i watched this i know he looked super familiar and i was like oh i think that's he the did cop. oh but my i gosh. didn't remember the cop's name yeah now <laughs> so. i need to rewatch because the entire movie i was like he looks so familiar but i have no idea i was like oh, you know some white man it's whatever so i was like it probably right. nobody he just looks <laughs> like everybody that's in the movie somewhere and i was but I, now i'm upset that i didn't make that connection i gave up too fast on that one <laughs> i didn't imdb quick enough i'm upset <laughs> um well uh, so this actually this film has a 75 percent approval rating on rotten tomatoes oh as she should she's a blast and um like the thing is it's just funny that critics were like eh, but then at the box office it just really cleaned house like that budget compared to what it made 
that's a huge return. It's insane. <laughs> Apparently, like, they spent like more money on marketing than they did like on actually, like actually the film filming itself. the movie. Yeah, I mean, there are some really amazing B movies out there. I'm on a journey through all the Hammer horror films right now. Oh, oh my god, are you? <laughs> and I'm like, some of these, especially the Technicolor ones, are like so good. Yes, yes because I'm doing the 100 uh, the horror movies I've never seen before challenge, and I was like, well, I've, I've actually never watched any of the Hammer horror films, so I've got a ton right there. If I just like follow the path of Dracula yeah. and Frankenstein, I'm I'm solid. So, <laughs> um, yeah, that's where we ended up there, but um. Yeah, I really liked this film and I I like it a lot. And definitely the original is always going to take the gold star over the 2005 remake with Tom Wellington and Maggie Grace. Nobody talks about that remake. Like literally it's never spoken of. So like I forgot uh, that it happened yeah. until I saw it on Amazon Prime last week and was like, oh, okay, I'll watch it. And then I was like, what did I just spend like two and a half hours? I, I feel like it's a really long film. <laughs> it has that feeling. Okay. And now I'm I was terrified. Like, this goes on forever. A real horror movie. Now I'm scared I to watch I it. I might have fallen asleep during part of it. I'm not sure. Um, but like the remake, let's talk about it real quick. So uh, 2005, the film was remade under the direction of it's Rupert Wainwright, by the way. I only remembered his last name. I knew his first name started with an R, but I was like, do we care? Not that much. So <laughs> the screenplay is by Cooper Lane. And like we said, it stars Tom Wellington. Well, sorry, Wellington. Welling, not Wellington. He's not a beef Wellington. I get confused, uh, well, too. Adrian might think so. Oh, yeah. I was about to say, <laughs> listen, hey, small though. <laughs> um, and Maggie Grace. So it's... Uh, it, although it's based on Carpenter and Hill's original screenplay, the remake was made more in the vein of a teen horror film. It's in that early 2000s time period. It was given a PG-13 rating. And I'm just like, that's why it sucks. Right. The original film was rated R. And there's no blood um, or gore in the original either, which is crazy that I got a rated R rating. But, you know, I don't know what they were thinking there. Do you see Jamie Lee's boobs? Nope. Nothing. Nope. Nothing happens. No, we're not there yet. We're not at boob territory yet <laughs> no, with Jamie not. Lee. Um, so <laughs> it was greenlit by Revolution Studios with just 18 pages of script written. And the film was almost universally panned for its poor script and acting and has a Rotten Tomatoes rating of 4%. <gasps> uh, <laughs> it's so bad. Uh, uh, I want you to just, just go read the Rotten Tomatoes reviews because they're so good. Yeah, I'm looking at pictures of the movie now. <laughs> the critic scores are so funny. <laughs> Lots um, of flames. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, it's so bad. Um, but um, yeah, like for the original film in the early 2010s, Time Out conducted a poll of over a hundred authors, directors, actors, and critics who have worked within the horror genre to vote for their top horror films. And The Fog actually placed it number 77 out of 100. You so know what? As it it's deserves. It's still out there. It's As such it a good deserves. Film. It's so good. I think it, I don't understand why it wasn't like well received. But I, I guess the thing with John Carpenter, that kind of happened with The Thing as well. Well, you know, and the, the you know, here's the thing with The Thing. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get the into thing it. The thing with The Thing is that it came out going up against E.T. that had just come out as well. Right. So people were comparing science fiction stories, right. one that is for children and one that is for adults, <laughs> yeah. and expecting to kind of come out of E.T. and be mentally and emotionally prepared for the thing. And it's just like, 
you know, it was a, it was a perfect storm. And Carpenter was apparently really hurt by that whole situation he for was. a long time. He was very upset about it. I guess that kind of kind of pans over as well to the fog, I guess, in terms of like its release time as well, kind of heading into the 80s. I mean, because I mean, obviously, John Carpenter himself kind of set in the new movement with slasher films from the late 70s into the 80s. So the gore, the slashing, it was kind of becoming the thing, you know, and he comes out yeah, with a supernatural movie. I think the movie. reason that everybody went to see The Fog is because of Halloween. Exactly. And then they get something that's completely different. And in terms of supernatural, I mean, I enjoy the movie, but if we're looking at like supernatural movies from the 70s leading into the 80s, I mean, the 70s had The Exorcist, it had Carrie, like the supernatural vibes that were maybe a little bit more direct with their scares, which I think is, I mean, they admitted it, you know, when they were filming it, like it, it didn't feel as scary. The atmosphere is there. It's great. But I think kind of coming off of the decade that was the 70s and just how raunchy it was in the 70s as well. I think they were kind of, yeah, fighting a losing battle. The 70s were erotic. They were cool. They were <laughs> insane. The 70s. So much was happening. I love 70s. So horror. good. It is so good. Quite honestly, terrifying. The 70s. Uh, that decade of horror really does like unsettle me. It's so good. But yeah, I think they kind of were fighting a losing battle heading into the early 80s with a film yeah. like this. But it's so great. Obviously, we love it now. Well, let's see what fun facts we can find from Mental Floss here. So I'm looking at an article by Eric Snyder from a couple years ago. And apparently we can thank David Cronenberg for the Fog's gore. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe, he says. So the film originally didn't have much blood in it. Carpenter having gone that route with Halloween, wanted to take a different tact this time, but gore was becoming popular with horror audiences. Like you said, the 80s were ramping up for gore. Uh, and since Carpenter was doing reshoots anyway, the studio urged him to add some bloodletting. So Carpenter says in the commentary on the DVD that um, it was David Cronenberg's film Scanners that specifically inspired this um change but scanners came out a year after the fog so maybe he was thinking of cronenberg's the brood <laughs> okay yeah that's what to so, say um but here's the thing we don't know when scanners was filmed so you know who's to say that if they had a you know good relationship yeah. that carpenter wasn't aware <laughs> of what was going to happen in scanners before he saw the film good stuff um yeah, and then it does confirm that John Carpenter was working on the fog with both his wife and his ex-girlfriend. Oh, he is. Wow. <laughs> what a set to be so, on. So <laughs> Carpenter and Deborah Hill met in 1975 when she worked as the script supervisor on Assault on Precinct 13, and they began dating shortly thereafter. They broke up in 1978. Eight, when Carpenter met Adrian Barbeau while making the TV movie Someone's Watching Me, Carpenter and Hill continued to work together for the rest of her life. She died in 2005, unfortunately, the same year that that remake came out. But making <laughs> The Fog couldn't have been easy for any of them as it starred Barbeau, to whom Carpenter was newly married at the time. <laughs> so uh, apparently Jamie Lee Curtis is a friend of Deborah Hill's and said in a 2013 interview that it was indeed an emotionally difficult time for her. Oh, I so, feel so bad. Imagine that set. Oh, Deborah, an icon, truly. Uh, yeah and then she produced that i just i'm like uh and you produced the remake the year you died that's I horrible uh, it doesn't exist let's just remember now, that let's just say <laughs> for anyone who's curious look uh into deborah hill productions because um she was a producer for quite a long time oh yeah she did and so a much writer so um 
a lot of different work uh, without, throughout her career that's definitely worth digging into. Yeah, she's fantastic. Um, apparently, there is a novelization of The Fog that clarifies an important plot point. So um, Dennis, uh, I think it's Etchison, wrote the paperback novelization of the movie. Um and he did that for Halloween as well. And I think that he was hired to do this. It was actually really common throughout the 70s and 80s to hire someone to do a novelization of a film to, to be like a companion piece to a film at the time. They also did that with uh, The Lost Boys in 1987. Did they? So, uh, they did. Yeah. What? So, um, yeah, you should read it. Also, I'll tell you some other things you should do when it comes to The Lost Boys. <laughs> Trust, I, I'm such a big fan of that film. So, um, apparently, it makes better sense um in the film excuse me so the novelization uh makes more sense than the film's plot did because it got kind of jumbled so one of the key examples uh from the novelization is that though it's implied in the movie the novel makes it clear that the six who must die are descendants of the original six whose uh nefarious deeds curse the town so um it's only implied in the film but it's made explicitly clear in the novel and then in the remake it's made explicitly clear again okay i do like that point. so <laughs> <laughs> um uh jamie lee curtis apparently made the fog as a favor so um after the success of halloween jamie lee curtis experienced a not unusual phenomenon where an actor expects to start getting roles but instead sits by the phone waiting so the only post halloween jobs she got were guest appearances on the love boat and buck rogers and she was getting really discouraged so carpenter who was sympathetic to the ups and downs of showbiz added a role in the fog just for her i think that's why that role feels like such an afterthought and doesn't have a lot of depth yeah kind of added in the last minute unfortunately as well she had a weird thing going on in the 80s because in 1980 she also was in prom night obviously and she's a much more prominent role in that film but at the same time it still feels kind of like not the central focus even though I mean, it's still great for her, but yeah, she was, uh, she was going through it well, at that Prom time. Night and terror train came along while the fog was in production or in post-production. So the three movies were then released back to back in 1980, which led to Curtis being dubbed cinema's new scream queen. Uh, so good. Honestly, so it just kind of so worked good. out that way. Yeah, honestly, <laughs> I guess you have to have starred in at least three horror films um not necessarily in sequence but like fairly closely together to be considered a scream queen technically interesting okay i love that so if it's like the same movie <laughs> like what if it's kind like of. like nev campbell and scream or just one two three <laughs> do we consider See, her I, to me no nev campbell is not a scream right queen. she's a central character in one story you know she's not like frequenting a whole bunch of different horror movies exactly it doesn't count if it's a trilogy so um or a what is it called now a, it's not a quartet that's four what's five oh, now you're bringing like crazy stuff <laughs> A Cinco. Oh my god. What okay, hold on. What what is a a quintet? Oh quint okay. That makes so much more sense. I was like, I know it's not a sink of something. (laughs) It's a it's it just sounds not like you would normally expect it to. But it's a quintet.
Oh, uh, so this one's fun. So just about every ghost arm seen in the fog belongs to one guy. <laughs> oh, my God. Do you know his Tommy name? Tommy Lee Wallace, a friend of John Carpenter's since childhood. Um, apparently, they grew up in Bowling Green, Kentucky together. Uh, he served as editor and production designer on The Fog, um, just like he did in Halloween. And in both movies, it had him doing a bit of on-screen work, too. Um, so Wallace was michael myers in halloween and in some of the shots uh and then in the fog there were lots of ghost attacks right so um when the ghosts attack the church it's wallace's arm seen smashing through each of the windows that is so hilarious it's him every time that he's is... just a really fast ghost <laughs> multiple arms <laughs> that is so funny i love that um, and then Janet Lee was apparently a big help on the fog. So um, securing the participation of a veteran actress who was also the star of Psycho and the mother of Jamie Lee Curtis was a big boost to the fog street cred. But Janet Lee proved useful in very practical ways, too. Um, apparently, uh, you know, because she was a pro. So Carpenter said that because of technical problems, the scene where she cries just before the festival begins required 14 takes and we <gasps> delivered real tears every time oh my gosh what a legend <laughs> oh janet lee casual casual tears 14 times in a row casual like who does that who can do that i surely can't unless it's a down day unless it's a down day but uh, and uh, apparently and the, the last one here says that the radio station um plays smooth jazz because of money reasons yeah makes so sense. apparently it was just cheaper for the filmmakers to get the rights to generic jazz music <laughs> and rock songs <laughs> so you know like the og cv could have been playing top 40 also oh the jazz adds so much to this movie I though like the jazz. it's so nice it's soothing at the Normally same time which makes it weird jazz music but this one <laughs> she's hitting really does it for me she's hitting just right <laughs> in this movie she adds to the atmosphere like it gives you a sense of calm when you know you shouldn't be calm it does it really does so what do we think adrian how would you rate this you've got five bloody knives to rate this film with you know what i'm gonna give this movie a definite four out of five I think that's fair. I think I gave it like a 3.5 or a 4. I'd have to double check. But um, actually, did I even rate it? I don't know. Yeah, should I um, check my rating? <laughs> I'll have to go check. <laughs> Let's see. What are our ratings? Yeah, I was to say, what did I rate it last time I watched it? Yes, yes. I gave it 3.5 stars. Okay, yes, so I gave it 4. 3.5 bloody knives for me. Woohoo, 4 bloody knives for me. Adrian, thank you so much for joining me and talking about The Fog. I hope you had fun. If you have any final thoughts on the film, share them now or forever, forever hold your peace until we chat about it on Twitter. <laughs> I love The Fog. First and foremost, actually, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I just, I love it. You're fantastic, by the way. You're great at this. Um, and thank you. Uh, the Fog altogether is great watch it it's amazing it's stunning the score is gorgeous john carpenter of course works his magic it's amazing some of the shots are great the lighting's great it's a fun movie it's really a good time don't go into it expecting character depth because you're not going to get it here um but everything else hits no there are no character arcs not really nothing happens for these characters they are just there no but <laughs> but you know Stevie Lamps has a great voice baby <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Adrian. I had a great time and can't wait to have you back for another movie soon. Yay, thanks for having me. 
Thanks for gathering around the campfire, listeners. Come slay away with us next time, and be sure to follow on Twitter and Facebook. Did you enjoy that episode? If you like the podcast, we encourage you to head over to Podchaser and leave us a review. The best part is it helps put Slay Away in the hands of more horror fans. 